I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome, and thanks very much for joining us. So I just got off the Skype phone with Byung-hyun Choi, who just translated the Annals of King Taejo, founder of Korea's Choson Dynasty, and this came out with the Harvard University Press in 2014. Now, I was really excited to talk with him, um, and he was extraordinarily generous about um, making time to talk, navigating the time zones between Korea and Vancouver and the technology. Um, so it really was a treat to talk with him about this. And I'm excited about this book, and I'm excited about having had the chance to talk with him about it. So this is a book that is a translation of a major and very, very important um, Korean document into English, which I think... Um, um, you'll hear more about the nature of the source and the nature of the time period that it covers in a little bit, but I think this is a really, really valuable resource, not just for historians, literary scholars, other kinds of scholars who might um, now have access to a primary source document that may not have been accessible um, in the original pre-modern Korean, but also it's a really great resource for teaching as well. Um, and so I wanted to make sure that we had a chance to kind of get the word out and explore a little bit of this uh, document that actually could potentially be um, excerpted or assigned in any number of kinds of classes in you know, world history, East Asian history, um, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I hope you have a chance to take a look at it. It's a sizable volume, um, and it's really just full of fascinating stuff on, you know, accounts of the weather, of clothing, of family dynamics, intrigue, architecture, urban history, domestic history. There are envoys that try to stab themselves. There's people getting drunk. There's animals all over the place. So it's, it's full of um, really interesting stuff. And it's also a kind of, in that way, little mini archive um, all by itself. So it was really a pleasure um, to finally have a chance to talk to Hyun about it. I hope you enjoy the conversation. I hope you have a chance to get your hands on a copy of the book and check it out. And thanks, as always, for listening. I'm here today to talk with Byung-hyun Choi about his recent translation, The Annals of King Taejo, founder of Korea's Joseon Dynasty. Thanks so much for being with me today um, here, and welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies. It's really a pleasure, and I'm thrilled that you're able to join me from such a far distance. So thanks very much for being here. Yeah, thank you for your invitation. So, Hyun, can you start off, as is traditional for the channel, by saying just a little bit about yourself and your background, and specifically, what brought you to the field of Korean studies? Uh, well, I'm a professor and scholar of English literature by training and career. I have taught English and American literature at Honam University in Gwangju, South Korea, since early 1990s. In addition to translating Korean classics, uh, I'm an award-winning writer and poet who published the books in Korean. Then you may want to know what made me translate Korean classics or you might say, pre-modern Korean texts into English. Uh, back in the late 1990s, I was in charge of American Studies Center at our university as director. Uh, then our center had a lecture program, and we invited Dr. Gary Hearn, then president of Maryland University in Yongsan, Seoul. After the lecture, he and I talked about various things, including current American literature. 
During our conversation, I had I said that though I am currently engaged in promoting American literature, my true interest lied in Korean literature. The reason why I decided to study English literature was only to develop and advance Korean literature. Upon listening to what I said, Dr. Hunt immediately said he was at the moment looking for one who could teach Korean literature in his school, but having a difficulty to find the right person. To make it short, that was the beginning of the whole thing. I mean, my enterprise and challenge of translating Korean classics. I taught a course titled Korean Literature in Translation, as well as American Literature at the same time on Saturdays while teaching at Honam in Gwangju. I enjoyed teaching American Literature, but had a very difficult time when it came to teaching Korean literature. The reason was that I was unable to find the proper Korean literature text translated into English. All I could find an anthology edited by Peter Lee, which I found too selective in adequate to introduce or instruct Korean literature as a whole. Having that problem, I was unable to give assignments or hold classroom discussion as I liked. Uh, to make it worse, I was constantly compelled to translate the text for my class if I wanted to teach what I wanted to teach, which was really hard. Besides, I found that all the good things worthy tra- uh, was tra- introducing to the students were pre-modern texts, and trans- uh, translating them even a little was difficult because I had a little time for researches and all. It was really frustrating, and I felt the problem was really serious. Uh, the problem persisted when I taught Korean literature at UC Irvine as a Fulbright scholar in 2000. To make it short, this Korean, uh, teaching Korean literature in Maryland, I found my mission as a Korean scholar of English literature. What my country Korea needed at the moment was not English or American literature, but the English translation of Korean classics, especially in the age of so-called globalization, in which Korean waves, Korean popular culture of a younger generation began to emerge as a new force of our cultural identity and so forth. So the book that we are here to talk about today is a translation specifically of the Annals of King Taejo. So can you talk a little bit about um, how you came to this particular project? How did you get involved in translating this text, and how is this situated within the broader context of your research, if at all? Well, as I look at it, there are enough books written in English about Korea and Korean history and literature, but very few books, particularly among pre-modern Korean classics, translated into English. Besides, those books written in English are mostly about Korean war or Korea's economy and so forth. So many Korean pre-modern texts worth reading are still unavailable to Western readers who cannot read the Korean language and classical Chinese. My long journey of translating Korean classics started right from there, the realization of this problem. 
for that reason, I felt that Korea and its culture were not only unknown, but largely misknown to Pope Thomas Carlyle. The English translation of the Annals of King Tejo in this context certainly will help the readers outside understand the old history of Korea along with China and Japan in a real sense. Great. Thank you so much. So the text, um, the Annals of King Tejo, represents an excerpt, so one part, of the veritable records of the Choson dynasty, a historical record that documents important events and historical developments from the first 472 years of the Choson period in Korean history. So for listeners who aren't um, maybe so familiar with this source, the veritable records, um, can you talk about it a bit? How were the veritable records produced? What's important for us to know about that? Uh, from the beginning, the Joseon dynasty established a system of making historical records on a daily basis. The system was not really new. In the previous Korea dynasty, there existed veritable records, though they were destroyed during the foreign invasions. However, in the new Joseon dynasty, uh, making veritable records were more firmly established from the start, both officially and systematically. So, institutionally, two junior officials from the Office of a Royal Decree, we call Yemunguan, were made to attend all the meetings between the king and his officials, whether they be private or public as well as the events and ceremonies that took place at the royal court. And these historiographers or chroniclers, you may call, meticulously recorded what they witnessed. Uh, they basically wrote a brief summary in a literary Chinese. What they recorded was called a sacho, a preliminary draft of history, and it served later as the basic materials for compiling official history when the king passed away. Uh, when their drafts concerned the politically sensitive matters, they were allowed to keep them privately. Uh, at home, but they were required to submit them later when the annals of the deceased king were compiled. The drafts of history made by historiographers were submitted to the Bureau of State Records, we call Chunchuguan, at the end of the day, so that any attempt to later revise the drafts for private or political purposes could be prevented. Anyone who attempted to revise them was subject to death or lifelong exile, and the strict law was to safeguard the integrity of the records. This law was so strict that even historiographers could not revise their own drafts of history once their drafts were submitted to the Bureau of State Records. Actually, there was an incident in early Chosun in which officials were put to death and exiled from making such attempts. So, it was already a well-known taboo from the start to revise or read the drafts of history before the annals were published. And this injunction was strictly observed throughout the 500-year-old Chosun history. Uh, once the king passed away, an ad hoc annals compilation bureau, we call Silokchung, 
was established, and SCOB officials selected from various departments for all learned and good at writing started working on the annals of the deceased king, collecting materials including satchel drafts and other records. It normally took a few years to finish, but sometimes much longer when those materials were destroyed due to rebellions and disturbances. What was interesting is that once the official annals were completed, the drafts collected for them were destroyed in a ceremony called the Satcho, which means washing the drafts clean with water, and then they dried the washed papers for using them again. That's really interesting. So what makes these veritable records so useful for historians? Why are they so important for historians? Uh, useful, uh, well, in many ways it can be useful. But uh, uh, first of all, I would like to talk about the reliability, uh, uh, if, if I may. Certainly, and, and they're actually part of the same issue. So yeah, it has just to. Move yeah. Right, yeah, let's just move right to reliability. Yeah, I would say Korean uh, veritable records are pretty reliable compared to those of Ming and Qing China. It is well known that Emperor Yongle of Ming China revised the annals at least twice to justify his usurpation of the throne from his nephew. This sort of thing never happened in the case of a Joseon Korea and his historical records. It's true that the annals of individual kings were once in a while influenced by factionalism. The prominent case is the annals of King Sonjo. Uh, they uh, existed two versions of veritable records. One is the annals of King Sonjo, and the other revised annals of King Sanjo, we call Sanjo Sujong Shilo. King Sanjo was a monarch responsible for the Imjin War, the unprecedented catastrophe in the nation's history. The original annals of King Sanjo was compiled during the reign of Kwang Hegun, who, su- who succeeded King Sanjo, and the northern faction uh, now in power, I mean during the reign of King Kwang Hegun, was uh, naturally critical of the Westerners and Southerners who played major roles during the reign of King Sonjo and the Imjin War. However, as Kwangegun was dethroned later by King Injo and the Westerners, there was general opinion that the annals of King Sonjo need to be revised because the Northerners in compiling the annals were unfairly critical of the Westerners. As a result, the revised annals of King Sanjo, much shorter than the original annals of King Sanjo, finally came out during the reign of King Hyojong, who succeeded King Injo. However, you should know that the Westerners did not destroy the annals of King Sanjo. Instead of destroying them, they made a revised version separately so that the posterity can judge the both texts on their own. This is the reason why I said that the veritable records of the Joseon dynasty are reliable. Uh, you asked about uh, the, how useful uh, the, these records are, can be used by historians, right? Mm-hmm. Mm. I don't know how to answer your question because I am not a historian, no, had no time to investigate mm-hmm. that. However, I can say this. As I observe, 
the uh, historical records like veritable records have been used more frequently and in an exciting way by the writers and producers of historical dramas and movies in recent years. Uh, in the U.S., you seldom watch historical dramas on TV. Here in Korea, historical dramas are on TV all the time. Oh, we have historical dramas. Ooh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, we do, we uh, well, do. Sorry, we have, have historical dramas. The tutors, the I'm oranges. Wrong, no, no, no. I just want a little I, plug for some, you know, scandalous yeah. historical dramas about the tutors and the Borgias. But anyway. Oh, yeah, that I know. But the, the, <laughs> I, I'm making comparison with sure, in general. Sure, yeah. So many movies based on history are extremely popular. For instance, last year alone, TV drama Chong Dojon was a hit, the most famous scholar that comes out in the annals of King Tejo. Movie Myeongyang, which featured Admiral Lee Sun Shin at the naval battle of Myeongyang, was a blockbuster uh, last year alone. So the usefulness of the veritable records appears to be limitless uh, as far as this annals of King Tejo and other veritable records are concerned. Mm-hmm. So let's uh, move from the veritable records more generally and start talking specifically about um, the annals of this particular figure. So for listeners who are not familiar with King Tejo, um, can you briefly explain kind of who he was? Now, I know that's a very broad question, but um, for listeners who might be interested in what you think are some of the most important things um, about this figure that merits um, a, a you know, translation of these annals. Can you maybe uh, speak a little bit about that? Uh, okay, let me give it a try. Uh, king Tezo is the founder and the first king of the Chosun dynasty, the uh, predecessor of modern Korea, Chosun dynasty. Yes. His name is Lee Sung-ge, and he was a military general during the Korea dynasty a war hero nationally recognized for his military success and outstanding leadership. And at the end of his distinguished career, he finally overthrew Korea in 1392 and with the support of new literati and army generals who followed him, founded a new dynasty called the Chosun, which lasted until early 20th century. The time he lived was when the UN Empire was in decline and the Ming Dynasty, which was founded and ruled by Chu Yuanzhong, later Ming Taichu, uh, was on the rise. The Korea court, which was also in a bad shape due to the frequent foreign invasions and intermarriage with the royal family of UN, was divided between pro-UN faction and pro-Ming faction. Yi Sung-ye led the pro-Ming faction, while his rival General Choi Young led the pro-UN faction. What happened was in 1388, when the Ming government demanded the return of the significant portion of the Korea's northern territory, General Choi Young and King Wu were outraged and ordered Yi Sung-ye to immediately attack Liaodong, China, crossing the Yalu River. 
Believing that the invasion of China had no chance to succeed, Yi Sung-ge tried to persuade Choe Young and King Wu not to launch an attack, but without success. So, he led the army up to the Yalu River, but due to the bad weather and rainy season, combined with a flood at the river, he finally turned around to march back home. The Yalu was his uh, Rubicon, so to speak, but unlike Caesar, his decision not to cross the Yalu was his declaration of war against the Korea dynasty. Upon returning, he defeated General Cheyong and dethroned King Wu. Nevertheless, he did not ascend the throne right away. He made Chang, the son of King Wu, succeed his father as a new king. However, both King Chang and his father, former King Wu, were soon found to have conspired to regain their power. And being guilty, they were exiled and put to death eventually. Then, Isonga had a member of the royal Wang clan crowned as the new king, and that is the King Kongyang. King Gongyang's reign had to be brief due to the hidden conflicts between him and Yi Sung-ge, and on the fourth year of his reign, King Gongyang was forced to abdicate the throne for Yi Sung-ge. Well, uh, but uh, yeah, it's too long to rehearse all the, what comes later, but mm-hmm. yeah, if you have a further question, I will answer that. So the text itself, um, as you tell us in the um, introductory materials to the book, was compiled in 1409, and it was completed in 1413. So why, is there anything about this particular period, right, that makes this source such an important source to translate? Well, uh, millions of foreign tourists visit Seoul every year, but they mostly don't know who made this great capital and all the royal palaces they visit. If Korea dynasty continued to exist, I guess modern Korea would turn out to be quite different. Korea used to be a Buddhist country. After Joseon replaced it, it became a confusion state. People need to know that all these changes started with the reign of King Tejo. By translating his annals into English, I wanted to let the people outside, visitors and tourists, the readers, know about important aspects of the Korean history, along with the histories of its neighbors, China and Japan, in the late 15th century. Uh, the veritable records of Joseon dynasty, along with other historical records, such as the diaries of the royal secretary, we call Sungjongwan Elgi, and diary of self-examination, all written by the kings themselves, is registered in the UNESCO's memory of the world since 1997. These records, being so voluminous, have never been translated into English. I want to let the people across the world know about the existence of these historical records, which can be interesting to them for various reasons. Along those lines, uh, and thank you very much for that, in your opinion, what kinds of historians, or historians or you know, other scholars working on what kinds of historical topics might uh, most benefit from working with this translation? 
if historians are interested in finding out how Joseon Korea started, who the major figures in that transition period were, and what their success or failure was, how Joseon society or political system looked like at that time, how the nation's capital moved from Kaesong in North Korea to modern Seoul, what was the city plan and the vision of the bureaucrats of the early Joseon, etc. I believe the annals of King Tejo can be used. Wonderful, thank you. So it strikes me on reading this, um, as somebody who teaches the history of East Asia um, and teaches global history, among other things, that this translation is also going to be potentially a very, very useful resource for teaching. And this is, and in fact, you know, in, our, in the beginning of our conversation, um, you mentioned the importance of a concern with teaching and the availability of texts for teaching as being, you know, one of the um, forces that motivated you to work on um, translating um, these kinds of texts in the first place. So my question is, have you had experience using this text um, in a teaching context, um, either with undergraduate students or graduate students? And if so, or, you know, or even if not, um, what have you found to be, or what might you imagine might be um, some mo- of the most useful ways of using this text um, as a teaching resource in the classroom? Well, so far I haven't had a chance to teach Korean history using the annals of a King Tejo as a textbook. Remember, I'm a professor of English literature. Of course. <laughs> but in the future, I guess, I may be able to use it if I am given a chance. Uh, since the book contains a multitude of information and materials regarding Korean history and culture, I'm sure it can be useful for teaching and many other purposes. All other books I translated, the book of corrections, admonition and governing the people, all those books are now currently are used as textbook uh, in the U.S. and other parts of the, the world. Uh, but the uh, uh, I'm sure that this uh, this text, uh, the Errors of a King Tedro, will be uh, used in the future in the classroom. Yeah, certainly. And and I think um, just before we'll we'll move on to more questions, I'll just note um, as a reader of the text that I think the book could be potentially very useful. Um, certainly in history classrooms, but also beyond history classrooms. I mean, I can imagine um, world literature classrooms as well uh, using all or part of the text, and there's some really, really interesting material in here on weather and animals, architecture, family history, medicine. Um, there's you know, accounts of omens. There's stories. Uh, there's, uh, there's one story of his envoy who gets really drunk and threatens to stab himself. I mean, there's all kinds of really wonderful material. So I can imagine that one doesn't probably have to be a history professor or teaching a course that's history per se or Korean history um, in order to make use of this as a, a, an example of a, a literary text even. Um, kind of annals as literature I think would be really interesting. But let's um, move on to talking about your experience as a translator. So from the perspective of translation, and this is something you have an illustrious career, right, in doing, this is something you have a, just a, a ton of experience with. For you, what are some of the most 
notable um, features of this text, the text, the, the features of the text that you might think are worthy of discussion from the perspective of translation. So as a translator, what are some of the most interesting features of this text for you? Well, earlier I said I found my mission as a Korean uh, scholar who studied and taught English literature, and the mission was translating pre-modern Korean texts into English. I feel like I am called to do this work because it has to be done no matter how difficult it is. I happen to be one of the first scholars who seriously attempted to translate Korean classics into English, publishing them all through the renowned university presses in the U.S. Great. And so as a, um, so as a translator, uh, and a, as you have just described yourself, right, a renowned translator, what were some of the most challenging aspects of the translation for you? Were there any elements of this text that you found particularly challenging to translate? And if so, can you talk um, a little bit about those? Well, the pre-modern Korean texts, you know, were mostly written in literary Chinese. I did non-major Chinese language. My field of study is English literature by education and training. So I have to consult the Korean translations as well as experts if I want to fully understand some difficult parts in the source text. Besides, I had no one to help me in my researches because the researches I needed were too difficult for them. So I had to do the researches all on my own while teaching and carrying out various duties at the school. So each text took me six years, ten years, even in the case of the Annals of King Tejo, four years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Were there any... Um, so aside from um, Korean translations, as you've mentioned, of the texts that you found useful in translating this pre-modern text... Were there any other um, resources, or what were some of the most uh, important resources, aside from that, if, if any, um, that you worked with in producing this translation? Oh, uh, let me say this. The, the complete Hangul translation of the veritable records, including the Annals of King Tejo, came out in the early 1990s. Mm-hmm. That was the work of more than two decades by a host of scholars who majored the classical Chinese. In addition to reading the source text for my translation, I consulted two versions, one translated by the scholars in North Korea and the other by the scholars in South Korea. Two versions each had strengths and weaknesses. Uh, the translation by Northern, uh, North Korean scholars were fluent, but they provided no annotation, glossary, and so forth, and therefore often difficult to translate when it came to certain important terminology or ideas. When I used them, I always had to go back to the source text written in classical Chinese to make sure what the translation says is correct. Translation by South Korean scholars, on the other hand, was too literal, so the translation doesn't appear to be a full translation, only a half translation. Furthermore, there were many, many mistranslations of the source text. So I had to be careful and do researches to clarify or rectify the problems on my own. Nevertheless, 
I cannot deny their importance because they, hey, they helped me despite their respective problems. So I'd like us to move to talking about um, some of the aspects of the text itself. Um, so we'll talk a little bit about that. Is there anything else, though, about um, the craft of translation as you um, undertook it for the book that you'd like to mention before we move on to talking about the components of the text? Uh, you uh, could you just uh, I missed sure. you. Oh no 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 <laughs> problem. I guess the, the question was um, I've been asking you um, a bunch of things right about your work as a translator. Is mm-hmm. there anything um, I haven't yet asked you <laughs> about your work as a translator, but that you think is important? Um, to uh, oh yeah. And the answer could be no, right? But I yeah, just want well, to give you a chance. Yeah. Well, I can uh, perhaps talk about uh, the the principle that I uh, have uh, in choosing a certain uh, pre-modern text that, that might be of interest to you. Because at first I was uh, kind of worried that if I translate a uh, certain uh, text, how would it be received by the Western readers? I was so concerned about that. Uh, because I'm talking about, uh, but uh, I'm going back to uh, 20 years ago. Uh, at that time, just uh, uh, the, what, I, what I was doing was kind of the uh, the, the never been attempted. So uh, I was very worried. So I, uh, when I chose uh, my text, uh, the uh, first of all, I thought about. Uh, how the text, uh, how much text uh, uh, can be relevant to modern times. Uh, let me tell you the, one of the anecdotes. Uh, this has to do with uh, the start of my translating career. Back in 1997, uh, there was a so-called IMF crisis uh, occurred in uh, that took place in Korea. Uh, the Koreans never heard of it. Uh, okay, and one day I was going home after work, and uh, I caught got caught in the traffic jam, heavy traffic jam, and uh, uh, I turned on radio, and there was a debate between. Uh, the the, uh, the the finance minister and the uh, the member of opposition party about uh, about this IMF crisis national crisis at the time and uh, they were blaming each other uh, the for the cause of the crisis and all of a sudden it occurred to me that, that this was the exactly the situation of a Qing bureau that uh, the later I translate the book of corrections uh, during the Im Jin War. The book was written by the prime minister at the time, Yu Song Leong, who was in charge of the whole war, uh, the operations throughout the, uh, the crisis. And uh, uh, that time, uh, 400 years ago, the, when Hideyoshi invaded Korea, people didn't know who Hideyoshi was. Why uh, uh, they were so much uh, the, uh, the confused and all. And when IMF uh, crisis took place, the Koreans didn't know what the IMF uh, stood for. They 
didn't quite understand. There's, uh, I found another parallel uh, situation uh, between now and then that uh, uh, 400 years ago, uh, the, um, the uh, what? anyway, <laughs> I just momentarily lost. There's a certain parallelism. And I will later get back to you. And so immediately upon uh, arriving at home, I took out the book, the Qing Biro, and uh, translated the, the, the preface uh, the, uh, into English. The, the, the preface is pretty short and not much long. It's a, a little more than a page. And when translated into English, I saw it was good to paraphrase the Genesis. Uh, uh, I was quite pleased and excited. But I wondered uh, uh, at the same time that when I translated the, all these uh, texts, very difficult task, uh, how would that book would be received? So uh, I tried to justify, uh, try to find uh, some kind of justification for the trans English translation of this important text. The first, okay, if the, since this event uh, uh, is uh, that the, not only the story of the four hundred years, but that also the current story. Uh, the, uh, which is recurring again and again is a story of a national crisis. Okay, so uh, I figured that uh, the, uh, it, since uh, because of the relevance, uh, I think that uh, people might be uh, the Western readers might be interested in it, and uh, also that the, the the story itself has a certain. Uh, uh, universality. The uh, national crisis is a kind of experience that, uh, that uh, perhaps everyone uh, across the world uh, just uh, can have. So uh, I figured that my translation uh, will stand uh, eventually, and uh, it turned out to be right. The, the book was uh, well received more than I expected. Yeah. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, especially. Um I'll just comment. Uh, it's really interesting to hear because, as somebody uh, at least personally trained as a historian, we you know we talk a lot about the importance of um, studying the histories of certain topics as they might inform contemporary debates or how we understand contemporary society and perhaps how might we might understand the future, right? But we don't often um, you know bring into that conversation, or at least not um, in my experience the importance of the parallel experience for translators, right? Mm -hmm. That not only understanding the history of the past, but also translating mm -hmm. um, the, the documentary archive of the past is also really important in terms of how we understand the present. Um, yeah. And so that's a very useful perspective to bring, and I thank you for that. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little, just a little bit about um, the book itself. Now, you mentioned... Um, in, you talk in the translator's introduction to the book about the general introduction of the annals. Now, the general introduction of the annals is quite long and detailed. And in the translator's introduction, you mention that it's longer and more detailed than those found in the annals of subsequent rulers. So why is that, and why is that significant? 
Well, the general introduction of Tejo was a brief biography of his younger days before he ascended the throne and founded the new dynasty. It's still long and detailed compared to his equivalence of his descendants. The reason, I suppose, has to do with the legitimacy of his new status as the king. In other words, the lengthy introduction provides all the information regarding his uncommon ability as a warrior and leader in a very difficult time of a national crisis, so as to prove how the mandate of heaven was given to him from the start and so forth. So in your opinion, um, and especially for readers who have not yet used this text, right, but for readers who might be interested in consulting it now that there's a reliable English translation, let's talk about, um, again, just a little bit, some of what um, readers might find in the text, um, you know, some of the elements of the text that you might find particularly interesting um, having now translated translated it. So for you, what are some of the most important moments in the annals in terms of how we understand, um, for example, you know, foreign affairs or foreign relations? It's, it's a theme that's very, very important throughout the text. And you've already mentioned a little bit about um, understanding this in terms of the Yun and the Ming, but um, what are for you some of the most important things about the text in terms of how, we, how it might inform how we understand I believe it all depends on the interest of individuals. The book has a tremendous range of diverse subjects and information. In my view, if anyone wants to know how a new dynasty is made, how it happened particularly in the late 14th century Korea, this text would be quite interesting more than anything else. As a rule, the historical texts of the countries that have long histories like China and Korea, the details in the records of their early history are often either too brief or too ambiguous. The annals of King Tezo in that sense is very exceptional. The readers can clearly see what happened if they read the book. So are there any um, important... Um, elements of the text, um, aside from foreign affairs, right, um, uh, that have to do with domestic history or urban history or any other kind of major topic that you think are, that you're particularly interested in or that you think make the book especially interesting. Well, in order to appreciate the book, the readers may need to know first the general background of late courier and early chosen history. Many things are hidden behind the words and records. Remember that historians or chroniclers have to be very careful about what they wrote. At the same time, I would like to point out that readers need to read the translation of the original source text, if possible, not just the books explaining about the general history. Otherwise, they cannot know the real voice and spirit of Korean people, especially their leaders and intellectuals. That's why the translation of Korean classics is important. So, Hyun, uh, thank you so much for making the time to talk with me today about this, I think, really interesting and really important new translation um, that I think really uh, kind of opens up the possibilities for how we engage with not just Korean history as writers and researchers, but also as teachers. 
is there anything else about the book um, and, you know, about any of the things that we've talked about that we didn't cover, but that you'd like to point out for listeners who may not yet have had the opportunity to read it? Oh, let me talk about uh, pre-modern Korean texts, uh, which um, which still remain untranslated, unknown to the outside world. Uh, the uh, the annals of uh, the, uh, the Joseon Dynasty, or we call the veritable records. And other important texts, diaries of the royal secretary, and the diary of the uh, the self examination. Uh, those texts, each uh, the in the case of the diaries of the royal secretary, amounts to uh, thirty four hundred volumes, and the uh, other texts, uh, twenty four hundred volumes. It's so voluminous. It. But they contain uh, so many informations, uh, virtually everything that concerns the Korean culture, history, and everything. Uh, they need to be known to the outside world. Uh, they are all now registered in the UNESCO memory of the world and so forth. But So that's why I attempted at least uh, to translate uh, this Annals of King Tejo. Uh, so uh, the... Um, the uh, not only those texts, uh, there, there are many other interesting texts uh, belonging to the Korea period or Three Kingdom period, not to mention the Chosen period. So uh, these days, Korea uh, has been known as the uh, a disseminator of a popular culture, K-pop, K-drama, you know, the Hollywood Korean waves and all those. But in a certain sense, they misrepresent uh, the, the true genuine Korea, in my view. Mm. So, uh, so we need to have a more competent uh, translators for all this, uh, the, uh, the, uh, for translating all this important uh, Korean text. So now that the book is out, and congratulations on the translation, what's next for you? Uh, what are you currently working on? Um, what are you, what's inspiring you right now? Mm-hmm. I've just finished the translating another important and interesting book called the Pukagi. Uh, in Eng- English title would be Discourse on Northern Learning, uh, which was written by Park Jae-ga, an 18th century Korean scholar. Uh, the book is about the author's awakening after seeing Qing China. Uh, Koreans used to hate and despise the Qing because Qing leadership originated from Joseon uh, Manchus and toppled the Ming that helped the Joseon during the Japanese invasion to repulse the Japanese invasions, invaders. Uh, the Joseon Korea paid a tribute to Qing China, but with no respect or gratitude. Anything like that. Koreans thought the uh, Chinese then were now barbarians and they had nothing to learn from that. Uh, but when Park Jae-ga and others visited Beijing, that time Beijing was called Yanjing, they were amazed to see the development and affluence of the Chinese society. As a result, the author calls for drastic reforms in all areas. So the book 
reveals certain interesting aspects of a chosen intellectual, especially their zeal for reforms, need for international exchanges, and their unique worldviews, and so forth. Well, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to talk with me. It's really been a pleasure, and again, congratulations on the translation, and thank you so much for your hard work on that. Yeah, it was a real pleasure talking to you. You've been listening to new books in East Asian studies. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time.